This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and I'm a clinician educator at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And today we'll be discussing a recent paper out in ATS Scholar called Feasibility and Preliminary Efficacy of an Anti-Racism Curriculum in an Academic Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division. And today we have our two co-first authors joining us on the podcast today. I'm joined by Dr. Deb Banerjee, and she's an assistant professor of medicine at Brown University in their division of pulmonary and critical care medicine. She's also the director of their Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Group and the associate medical director of the Rhode Island Hospital Medical ICU. And today on our podcast, we also have Dr. Nick Nasikis, who's an instructor in medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and Harvard Medical School. He's a physician investigator focused on asthma, air quality, and the impact of climate change on health. So thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. I echo that. (laughs) So to get us started, maybe both of you could tell us a little bit about the origin of the project. There's been a lot of interest in developing curricula around equity, diversity, anti-racism. For you two, sort of what was the background for you at your institution and, and what was going on at the time when you were thinking of putting this together? Yeah, so um, I think the origin story for this curriculum is kind of one that I look back on and think, you know, it was pretty inspiring how we got to where we are now. But it started with, you know, after the George Floyd murder on May 25th, 2020, my co-fellow Parvati and I, I was a fellow at the time, we were both on ICU rotation sitting in the fellow lounge. And we're just talking about how the, there were all these national events happening. And we felt you know, very disengaged from the what was going out on outside of the hospital and really felt like there should be more conversations happening within the hospital, within our education to talk about some of these national events. I mean, we know there's implications for the care of our patients, yet it, it really was something that was, I think, missing from a lot of our education up to that point. And so, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where you're kind of sitting, talking about the national events. There was, a, I think, a TV on in the room. And, you know, we had one of those, where we, you know, one of those um, moments where we both kind of looked at each other and went, we got to do something. And we had no idea what that would be. And it kind of just started off with saying, all right, let's, let's actually try to do something. Let's try to get a conversation started and reached out to a couple of our attendings, Deb Banerjee, obviously, and as well as a few other of our attendings and, and just said, hey, this is something that we're thinking about. We're, you know, we're feeling like we need to do more and started kind of brainstorming some ideas. And then from there, it was really identifying people that you know, I, I was no expert at all. And so uh, really it was about identifying people who could help us get the conversation started because, you know, I think all of us felt like we didn't necessarily have all the tools to do that and we needed a lot of help from other people. And uh, at that point, we identified a, a medical student who was incredible, Angela Zhang, also co-author on the page, uh, paper, and then Yvonne Doc Oswald, a psychiatry triple board resident. And they really helped get this curriculum started. 
but it all kind of started from a conversation and it was really amazing how just from that, how many people said, yeah, I, we agree. We're also thinking about it. Let's do something. And clearly there was an interest, not just with, among the fellows, but among the faculty and our division leadership that really something, we should do something. And um, the something turned into a, a year-long curriculum that um, we're excited to talk about today. Yeah, I love how it was uh, the magic in the fellow call room or in the yeah. you know the fellow <laughs> lounge. That's where ideas are born. Yeah. <laughs> but more impressive is that you actually like made it happen, right? Because I think a lot of people definitely in that moment felt a lot of things and felt really impacted by events. But yeah, like the the fact that it it actually took place or happened in a in in a way that other others in your fellowship and in your division got also able to be involved is really the special thing I think here. So, you know, who, who all did you collaborate with then? And who did, who were your stakeholders that you had to go and make a case to and what all was entailed in that? So I'd say once we kind of figured out what the, you know, what, what the intervention was going to be. In other words, what we were going to do, which was this curriculum. You know, in the in the beginning, it really started off as an i uh, an idea for a curriculum and I, an idea for a couple of different um, lectures. And then over the course of the year, we started you know retooling it, adding different um, elements like a journal club discussion and a panel discussion. But in the beginning, when we figured out that it, it really really wanted some kind of foundational lectures. You know, the, the important thing is to, one, get buy-in, and the buy-in had to occur from faculty and fellows and our division. And then the next thing had to be, you know, dedicated time to do this. And it couldn't be, you know, we quickly figured out that it couldn't be just added on at the end of the day or, you know, something that was added on to, you know, already a really busy time, especially during the pandemic. It had to be something that we could use the existing structure of, of our fellowship and, and kind of build it in. And so we were kind of lucky at Brown where we had this um, one hour block of educational time every week that wasn't always used. There was a lot of work being done to kind of build out that educational time into a, a, a larger curriculum. But, you know, once we figured out we had this curriculum and wanted to implement it in our division, we kind of used that chunk of time to have people have protected time and, and be able to participate. And I'd also say that, you know, there was polite nudges from our division chief, Mitchell Levy. I give, you know, him huge credit for really advocating on our behalf and, and really encouraging people to attend these sessions. And I think that's why we were lucky to have the number of people attend that, you know, otherwise might not have. Yeah, and I can at least speak from the faculty perspective, you know, we talked about it at faculty meetings, and I completely agree. The program directors were involved as well, and, you know, both from critical care and home critical care, and so I think that helped a lot, you know, to bridge the fellows and the faculty all being invested in this. Yeah, it sounds like it was a mixture of that sort of like grassroots vibe coming from the fellows, and then also having, when you have leaders who take a stand or like put their nickel down and, and show investment that is kind of contributes to the ability to actually get things done. So props to both sides of the spectrum there, it sounds like. So, and it sounds like you didn't have to get rid of anything. That was like a fortunate turn of events that you were able to slide this into a space that was ripe for the taking. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. We really didn't cut, we didn't have to cut anything else out of our you know, our training to make room for this. It was really, I mean, 
it was one session a month for basically, you know, 12, 12 months. There were 13 sessions altogether. And each one was about an hour long. So it was really, you know, I think one of the takeaways from our study is that this is this was feasible within the structure of our existing fellowship and likely feasible in other institutions as well. So, you know, one hour a month really wasn't too much to too much to ask for. And again, from the faculty side, I will say it was still a decision. We have to prioritize it, right? We had to say this is something we're gonna spend time on to do, you know, and yeah, maybe we don't do that second PH lecture at that time. We'll figure out another slot or we'll talk about it during CAP or something else. But it is because everyone was on board and said, yes, we're going to do it, that we were easily able to fit it into the structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, prioritizing it, actively prioritizing it. So then what were your goals as you sat down to put the curriculum together? Or what did you want to leave your co-fellows and faculty with at the at the conclusion of the first year as worth of, of sessions at least? Uh, yeah, sure. So our goals are really to address what the fellows had brought up as concerns initially and to, I think, really learn and understand what systemic racism is and interpersonal racism, how it plays a role in our professional and our personal lives. I think it's a lofty goal. It was very aspirational. And certainly, I think to truly achieve it, you know, takes more than a lifetime of study and practice. So we wanted to start the process. And so we were able to, as Nick mentioned, actually harness the expertise of our kind of local scholars and peers too, which was great. And I love this like specific statement that you made in your discussion, and I'll just read it here for our listeners. You said, rather than focusing on diversity training, this curriculum focused on anti-racism to first identify structural racism in the healthcare system, then provided opportunities to discuss ways to achieve equity. Can you say more about that distinction that you must have been making, you know, if not explicitly, at least over the course of the curriculum and how you kind of came to that point and what do you mean a little bit about the difference between about uh, the difference between diversity training versus anti-racist training? Yeah, that's a great question. And I myself did have a similar kind of question when we were starting initially um, and kind of laying the groundwork for the series. I was a facilitator for implicit bias training at Brown Medicine before and felt that I, you know, at that time I understood kind of the basic tenets of interpersonal discrimination at least, but I really was blown away by how much I did not know as it relates to racism specifically in medicine. So I think of racism as racism plus it's discrimination plus power and uh, disrupting the power dynamics is really the key operational piece that's specific to anti-racism that I do think is different from diversity training alone. And I can kind of expand on that a bit. So I would say anti-racism training focuses on kind of one of many different facets of identity that can be used, right, as a target for prejudice. But we focused on race and racism because of kind of contemporary acute issues, but then also um, historical reasons. So, you know, acutely, Nick brought up, you know, we saw health disparities during the pandemic as critical care physicians and pulmonary physicians, and then also these racially motivated murders um, across the nation. But we've also inherited a long history of racism in medicine. I think so much so that it's sometimes hard to separate or distinguish the parts of medicine that have been kind of indoctrinated with racism or have ties to racism from other you know, uh, assumptions, facts, biology, physiology that 
aren't potentially tainted, but really how do we separate those pieces? It feels rather overwhelming at times, I would say, uh, but I think once it's kind of unveiled that this is how the practice of medicine, medicine and even kind of medical education has been, it's hard to go back and to not see it. And so I think anti-racism work really is kind of a natural evolution of general diversity training. Thank you for sort of like explaining that and kind of getting into the weeds about it a little bit. I think it helps to frame the discussion around what, you know, what it is that you all launched into teaching to, to this group. So in thinking about how you, you know, next steps, how did you decide about how you were going to, like who you were going to include? Fellows only, all the division, all the faculty, is it required for people? Is it, you know, if you feel like it, what, what were the discussions around that? Yeah, um, I can start and then Nick, if you want to chime in. So I think speaking as a faculty member, I would say that the faculty have the largest knowledge deficit in this realm. And I think especially compared to fellows or trainees who've more recently come out of undergraduate medical education, because I think they most likely have had some exposure to anti-racism training or principles. It's becoming more and more consistently incorporated into medical education, which I think is great, but especially at that level, less so on the GME side, but it's happening, right? We're starting. And clearly our fellows were the inspiration to make this happen, right? So they gave a call to action. And so I think it was incumbent upon us to actually heed that call. So it made sense to have both groups involved. You know, as for whether it was required or mandatory, you know, at the time it was not mandatory or required and we didn't feel that it would really help kind of be more inclusive. Rather, we thought it might alienate or at least put undue pressure during a time when we were all working so hard in COVID. So we're really pleased and happy with the turnout that we got, you know, and I'll put a little asterisk at the end of that saying that I, Nick, please feel free to jump in, but I'm going to take the liberty of speaking for the committee saying that I think we would all agree that having consistent anti-racism training is imperative, however, to being an effective provider. So I think it's really important, but at that time we felt that the requirement wasn't going to be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I think we were fortunate enough to roll this curriculum out at a time when there was, a, there were already a lot of conversations going on um, nationally. And so it felt so particularly relevant. And I think also highlighted the lack of knowledge within, you know, medical trainees that I think a lot of people said, this is absolutely something that's important. And even though it's not required, it's something that, you know, we already have the educational time protected for us. You know, this is something that we need to participate in. Yeah, it sounds like there was enough intrinsic motivation kind of broadly, at least at that moment, that people were like willing to prioritize it, even if there wasn't an extrinsic motivation or a, a stick or a carrot in addition <laughs> to it. And in your in your manuscript, you mentioned that the the BRIM program, which is a, a for for listeners who aren't unfamiliar with it, it's a bias reduction in medicine program had already been rolled out or um, the faculty had already participated in it. Did you have any sense of did that lay the groundwork for this? Did it have any relevance to this or kind of true, true and unrelated? Uh, yeah, so the fellows had not undergone BRIM, but the faculty had. <clears throat> so I think you're really right to say that we had a very receptive group already. And it did lay the foundation for this. And it was, I think, evidenced by the high pre-intervention motivation to participate that we saw in our surveys. 
So BRIM, as you said, bias reduction in general medicine. It's a multi-site um, NIH-funded study by Dr. Molly Carnes, who's wonderful and out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I think this is exactly kind of what the faculty needed as a primer. It laid the foundation for what we were going to do for a specific anti-racism training. And I think a lot of us on faculty kind of gained some insight uh, during BRIM to better understand how we might be committing or even be the targets of microaggressions in our daily experiences. It is a personal experience as a Bengali woman who's grown up in the U.S. It made me think and re-examine many moments in my life where I felt like things weren't quite right, but I didn't know at the time what the words were to describe it, or I couldn't label it, didn't know what it was. Um, so I think implicit bias training is a really useful tool, but it is also distinct from an anti-racism course, uh, which was really the focus at the core of what we were doing. Our course wanted to focus heavily on structural racism, and you know we're hoping that ultimately influencing policy and procedure is going to be at the core of combating kind of racism at the community, institutional, structural level. So we'll keep in mind kind of everything that we've learned, and it's a it's a process, it's a journey. So it was nice that we all, some of us had kind of started um, and been entrenched in this going forward. Yeah, so maybe it was complementary. Yeah, I would say. Helpful so. for, as you mentioned, maybe the faculty who hadn't had as much exposure to some of these topics explicitly taught at other stages in their training. All right, so then let's think about how you were planning to assess this program, which is always, you know, big questions when we talk about medical education, curriculum development and evaluation. So, you know, how were you going to get a sense of how to evaluate this curriculum since you put so much effort into it? What, what did you plan to measure? And is there anything that you wish you had been able to capture? Yeah, so I think, you know, to start, we thought it was really important to just get a sense of what's the, what's the baseline, you know, where are people, where where are people starting? And I think we knew from the beginning, we wanted, you know, regardless of where people were starting, we knew some people probably had more expertise or more knowledge and others had no exposure or knowledge. And, but we knew from the get-go that we really wanted a curriculum that was gonna start kind of at the foundational level and build the foundation. We still felt like it was important to kind of get a sense, you know, before the curriculum, where do people stand? What are people's views? The kind of general, so we did a pre-post survey design. So we surveyed people before the curriculum, rolled out the curriculum, and then surveyed people afterwards, and then looked at, you know, changes before and after. And the kind of the themes of the questions that we would ask were kind of interest in having a curriculum. They're like, is this something that appeals to you? Are you interested in it? What's your knowledge about different scores and algorithms and how they incorporate race? Those were kind of our knowledge-based questions. There were a few of those. And then some questions on really individuals' comfort discussing these things with their peers. So discussing racism, race with your peers and with patients as well. And, and so th those were kind of the, the themes of the questions we asked before and afterwards. And, you know, when we were, you know, designing the survey questions, there's an incredible group called Living Cities, a New York group that does a lot of work in this space with looking at race-based income and wealth gaps. And they have some surveys that we adapt, survey questions that we adapted for our survey. And I think, you know, if there were one, like obviously the goal with this work is not only to help each other understand these issues better, but, but also our, your, your ultimate goal is probably to have it so we're taking better care of our patients, you know, that the things that we're doing in our education are, um, are helping our patients. And so I think, 
that's really hard to measure and uh, something that we talked about and you know said it would be amazing to kind of get to a place where we could actually see if patient outcomes change but but was kind of outside the scope of the curriculum for us the holy grail of yeah, the holy <laughs> grail that we want to measure is the, yes. the patient level outcomes yeah, yeah. it sounds yeah. like you were able to measure some changes in or impact on knowledge comfort and interest in terms of you know they want the curriculum before it rolled out versus after it was rolled out. Yeah, those things are already hard to measure. So <laughs> let alone the, the, the patient level things. Um, so then tell us about tell us about the actual curriculum. You know, the goal again was to provide knowledge about racism in medicine, particularly relevant to pulmonary and critical care and sleep medicine topics, which I appreciated and improved that comfort in discussing racism. So what you know, did you use other existing curricula that were out there? Did you start fresh, you know, with a blank slate? How were you figuring out, you know, lectures versus small groups versus speakers from your institution versus outside? Tell me a little bit about how you how you put the pieces, the building blocks together. You know, I'd say one of the things that you know, this again is we were really fortunate that we had two incredible people really start this for us. And I, I mentioned Angela Zhang, the medical student, and Doc Oswald, the, the resident in psychiatry. And they really were instrumental in creating the first group of lectures that were setting the foundation. How do you how do you define race? How do you talk about these things? They were instrumental in running um, discussions with our group and, and being discussion leaders. And so they really were the ones in the beginning who set the lectures, prepared the lectures for us. And then from that, we kind of built off of that foundation and added other sessions down the road. I think one of the things that we knew was important was to have people talk about things that they're knowledgeable talking about. In other words, it wouldn't make sense for someone like me to lead a lecture on something that I, I just am not going to be able to talk about. And so, you know, in the beginning, having Angela and Doc really lead some of those early um, sessions was, was incredible. And then from there, Arvidi and I led a journal club talking about an article, how to be an active bystander. And that was something that we felt comfortable talking about and, and were able to engage our peers on that. And then we brought in a congressperson to talk um, and a couple outside experts. So um, I'd say, you know, a lot of the sessions were designed on getting the experts to talk about the topics that they have expertise in. And then also, you know, engaging our fellows and faculty on topics that were some, you know, trying to be as relevant as possible to the field of pulmonary and critical care. So we had a couple sessions on PFTs and race, uh, the algorithm that, for PFTs that uses race. And, you know, in that session, it really generated a lot of discussion um, to the point where we said, okay, there's so much going on here. There's so much to unpack that let's actually have a panel discussion. So this was one of the great things about the curriculum is really flexible. And so we had this session, we brought in an outside expert, Lundy Braun, who's amazing. And there was so much discussion afterwards. They said, okay, we need to, we need to continue this. It's going to extend beyond an hour. So uh, the next session was a panel discussion with a couple of our attendings and, and also was easily able to fill an hour of, of really interesting, thought-provoking conversation about that. Um, Deb, did you have other thoughts? I was just going to chime in to say for um, any listeners who don't know, Dr. Braun, for example, is a professor of anthropology 
and she studies the history of race and spirometry. And then Dr. Zhang Angela, as you said, a medical student at Brown at the time, was the fellow for the Brown Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs, specifically um, helped in the program, which is called Brown Advocates for Social Change and Equity. And their curriculum was the basis for a lot of the beginning lectures. And Dr. Aswad, Doc, he was the chair of the Brown Minority House Staff Association. So we felt that we really brought together a great group of people to help us with this, people who are really knowledgeable. Yeah, what a what a neat thing to have folks locally who have a breadth of expertise and coming at it from different perspectives, right? Not everyone was a home critical care doc who just happened to be in your division, but coming with a lot of different perspectives to lend. And that must have made it nice to have a variety of different facilitators as well. I think so. I think, you know, Looking back, it was probably important that we had people outside of our division giving some of these lectures. And I, I, I echo what you said. It was we were just so fortunate that we had such excellent people that were willing to engage with us, and so motivated. The amount of I mentioned that it was you know an hour a month, but the amount of work that Doc and Angela put into this was extraordinary. They really did an amazing job putting together these lectures. Yeah, it's always a reminder that the incredible amount of effort and pre-work that goes into pulling off any kind of teaching session, let alone something that was so complex and probably for an audience or participants that they were less familiar with in some ways. Yeah, I'm sure that it it was a tremendous, a tremendous effort, but sounds like there was a lot of payoff as well. It sounds like you had some sessions that were workshops or small group sessions that were like meant to be more interactive than solely didactic. Can you say more about those sessions? Were they combined fellows and faculty together? How did you set the tone for people to be open and willing to have conversations around maybe more sensitive topics? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go first, Nick, if you want. Um, so we did have several sessions. Some were more didactic than others, like a traditional lecture and then an audience kind of absorbing information. And then we had individual exercises. And remember, this was all done via Zoom, so on video. So we did our best to have things that would be very participatory and have these breakout rooms as well. And I think our division as a whole is not very hierarchical as far as some divisions go. And I think that helps a lot. So the fellows and faculty, um, and Nick, you can can be our fellow representative and I'll be our faculty representative. Um, overall, I have a really close relationship. Part of the reason that I know I wanted to be at Brown, we didn't feel the need to caucus, but um, definitely understand that that's an important tool to have, especially if there is a power differential among the group. But you're right to point out that there may be a level of censorship, either on the faculty side or the fellow side, kind of when discussing such a sensitive topic, as you mentioned, in front of their colleagues. I'm happy to say that I think we had some really wonderful conversations and dialogues um, in the breakout rooms and things that even spilled over, right? We would have to cut the session. We're saying, oh, it's time to go and do other stuff, but people still wanted to chat and talk. And I think a lot of what came out of this helped inform even changes to our fellowship and faculty recruitment and, you know, the cycles that came after, which is really exciting and kind of spurred, you know, research projects for some people. So I think there was a lot that came out of it, which was tangible and really nice to see. I don't know if that answered the question, but. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I guess, yeah, I would would just echo that. I mean, I think that's another, you know, we're lucky that 
the relationship between there isn't that big power differential, you know, between fellows and faculty. And so for the most part, you know, I, I think there were really honest conversations and people would acknowledge, hey, listen, I don't have the words in my toolbox to talk about this, but, you know, I'm going to speak anyways. And I think it was, you know, that was one of the, you know, amazing things that kind of came out of this was people being willing to talk about something that is, can be difficult to talk about. Sounds like you had a very receptive group to, to begin with there. And so now tell us about the results. You know, what did you find when, after going through this whole big process of building the curriculum and evaluating it? Yeah. So I think, you know, our, so in our pre-curriculum survey, I think one of the things that came, became clear from our survey was that the majority of respondents agreed that racism occurs in medicine, that it has significant implications for our patients. The majority of people felt like they wanted a anti-racism curriculum. And then I think there was also a couple, you know, a couple of the questions that we asked, you know, that were more knowledge-based questions, for instance, talking about the term code switching, you know, it was clear before the curriculum that, you know, those weren't necessarily always terms or vocabulary that people knew. And so I'd say the, the general takeaway from um, the, the pre-curriculum results is we know racism is happening in medicine. Let's have a curriculum on it and then, but, you know, develop our vocabulary and how to talk about it. And then in our post-curriculum survey, we found that there was you know, no, no big change in terms of the proportion of people who felt that racism occurs in medicine. There were more participants that reported feeling able to identify examples of institutional racism in the curriculum. And then there was a slight decrease in the number of people who wanted curriculum to be continued. And I think that deserves a little unpacking in part because you know, it's difficult I think this is where it was really helpful to have some of these answers where people could type in their own responses. And I think, you know, people, it's hard to understand if, if obviously the, the curriculum that we ran over the course of the year was really focused on setting a foundation. And there's so much more to build off of that, that continuing the same curriculum might not make sense for the same group, because now we've already talked about setting the foundation. And I think it's important to say, okay, Maybe it's not the same curriculum we want again, but it's important to still have an anti-racism curriculum that continues to build off what we learned in the past year. And even though the number went down slightly afterwards, um, it was still a majority of people felt like it was important to, to have an anti-racism curriculum. Was there anything else that was surprising or did could you do you feel like you could have predicted a lot of the, the direction that these things went? I'd say the the part that was most surprising or, or maybe the, you know, maybe the most interesting are some of the responses that, you know, that people, you know, that, that people wrote. So it's not always the change in, in comfort discussing something, but it's really, you know, what did you think about the curriculum? What things would you change? And that's where we had some, you know, on, you know, maybe there were comments that people didn't feel as comfortable saying out loud, but certainly, you know, these, these were anonymous surveys and, People were quite honest about the strengths, but also the flaws of the curriculum and, and some of the issues that they, they took with the curriculum. And, and I think it was that sort of, uh, that's, that's the part of the survey that I think is, is incredibly important to helping the, the curriculum grow and change and really adapt to what the needs are of the division. So I don't know if that's the most surprising or, or also just also kind of the most beneficial for, for kind of moving forward. The money is always in the free text comments. <laughs> yes. <laughs> takeaway. Yes. I always have a free text area. Yeah. It's, uh, it's illuminating. Yeah. 
And did you did you look at any differences in the responses between fellows and faculty, or were they sort of all grouped together? Yeah, we did. So we we did look at differences between fellows and faculty. It's a smaller group, but for the most part, they were pretty aligned. I think there was one question that asked if respondents had the tools necessary to achieve racial racial equity. And we found that fellows felt slightly less strongly than faculty that they had the tools to achieve racial equity. So that was one of the questions where maybe there's a slight difference between fellows and faculty. But for the most part, they were pretty similar. Yeah, maybe gets at the, the sort of equality within your division that you were discussing before. What did you all find was most challenging about this process? What was maybe as you were setting off, maybe didn't even have a sense of what you were, what you were biting off at the beginning. I would say that it was, I I definitely think that we had, at least I had no idea what we were about to embark on in the beginning. Um, And so it almost made it easier to kind of ignore some of the challenges that we encountered, you know, things like finding protected time or, you know, developing department buy-in, developing a path to continuing the curriculum year after year, finding funding, things like that. But in the, I think in the beginning, the, the, the biggest, uh, my biggest hesitation was kind of this feeling of like, who am I to be, you know, co-leading this effort? You know, um, I think my motivation was as someone who felt like I, I wanted to grow my own toolbox and how to talk about these things. And so it was then felt a little bit, you know, it felt a little bit odd for me then to be, you know, talked about as like one of the co-leaders of this, of this effort. And when I say co-leader, I mean, it was an incredible, like there was an amazing team. So I hesitate even to say a co-leader, but, you know, someone in the beginning who was uh, starting to have these conversations, I think that was kind of one of the biggest challenges. And then, but from that, you know, this incredible group of people emerged. And I think, looking back, that's, that's definitely one of the most inspiring things is, you know, from a conversation just about, hey, we need to do something to all of a sudden we have a curriculum and have identified all these people within our own institution and outside of, uh, outside of Brown who are so engaged with this, spending their life, you know, careers working on this and to bring those voices into our fellowship training was, was really incredible. Anything for you, Dr. Banerjee, on thinking about, you know, challenges setting off on this big project? Yeah, it was very intimidating, but I didn't, I, I completely agree with Nick. I don't think I knew at the time what I didn't know. So it was a little disinhibited. Like it, it helped. It was um, kind of facilitated the process, which was nice, I guess. I think, you know, I think Nick, you were saying this too. One of my biggest personal challenges was probably my internal um, kind of acceptance uh, that systemic racism exists and that it's truly just so integrated into everything that I'm doing, my decision-making process, how I'm interacting with colleagues, but also, you know, when I'm seeing patients in the unit. And that's scary. It's really nerve-wracking to sort of kind of reconcile that with this feeling of like helplessness and what can I do? Um, Yes, I should feel empowered to be able to do something about it. So I thought navigating that was a bit challenging. And then in terms of what I'm most proud of, I loved what you said, Nick, and that is so true. I think I would add to that and say, it's just so cool that now this is a conversation that's become so normalized. You know, we started this, we did this. And now, you know, if we say, oh yeah, we're gonna do a Jedi session on this, you know, we're going to, you know, talk about kind of revamping 
you know, something related to DEI or kind of looking at our own data, like looking at fellows clinic versus faculty clinic and patient outcomes and what are the differences and why there are differences. And now that's not kind of surprising to anyone. It's normative, it's great, and it's something that we can actually kind of robustly study systematically, which is really awesome. Hmm. It sounds like you're almost describing like the, you, you at least now feel that the curriculum's impact disrupted something almost just by having yeah in a way um, I mean I, I like to hope so language around it yeah 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 that's well, that kind of the feeling I get um yeah you know, right I quantify it I'm not sure yeah but harder. Feeling, I guess. harder but maybe maybe that's yeah maybe the I was going to say what are so what are the next steps like where's this curriculum now this this curriculum took place in in 2020 into 2021, I believe. So here we are two years later. So where where have you taken things? And before Deb tells you about where things are, this is where, you know, I think Deb gets, you know, just a huge, huge kudos because what started off with this conversation between a couple of fellows, really Deb took the helm at leading this group and getting the people together, designing this curriculum. And then I think all along we knew one of the most important things was this can't just be a one-off sort of thing. Okay, great. We talked about it and we're done. It had to be something that would continue. And not only has it continued at Brown, but Deb is now taking this to other divisions within Brown. So there's incredible uptake from other groups. It's clear that you know, there's so many people that uh, want to be engaged with this, with this curriculum. And, and, and that's a testament to Deb's uh, perseverance through all this. And so it's, I think that, you know, it's really amazing to look back at all the things that have come out of this, but Deb, you tell, you can tell everyone where <laughs> things stand now. That's, it was, that's super generous of you, Nick. And so, so kind. I was like, please just come back. <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone misses you, but DI is lucky to have you. That is, that's so, so nice. And I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, you know, as Nick said, we're really excited that the committee has grown even more, right? So outside of our division, the Department of Medicine and other departments in Brown positions have kind of come together. There is a core group of us who have helped streamline, curate this new curriculum, which we are delivering to a bunch of different departments. So this year, we're actually starting with the Department of Surgery, um, Hospitalist Medicine, and Dermatology. And then we're continuing to do JEDI sessions for our division. We had transgender care sessions. So we kind of broadened from anti-racism to uh, the diversity piece and, you know, continuing to do workshops. So I'm hopeful that this year we'll be able to do some simulation workshops, which I think will be really nice in terms of the practice piece of it. And, you know, I think hopefully, you know, for our division itself, it would be nice to have a follow-up to see how this curriculum, at least self-reported, has impacted the perspectives on race and racism within our group. So the fellows who were here and made, you know, maybe dispersed are still here, and then the faculty as well. That's awesome that it's, that it's just blossomed over time and that you're slowly taking over the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How would you advise others then, since it's the, since it has been such a local success, you know, for folks at other institutions, what are like some lessons learned that you would tell them if they were setting off to start something like this or recognizing they've already recognized the need for it? 
How would you tell somebody to begin or things to look out for to keep in mind? So I, I think my hope is that this, this curriculum that, that we ran over the course of the year really was, I mean, it's in our title, really was feasible. The time commitment was not that big. An hour a month is, is not that much time to carve out. I think the challenge for other groups that are looking to do something similar is really identifying the experts to talk about, you know, who are the people that are, are gonna talk about this? I think one, maybe one lesson is it doesn't have to be, the people leading that effort don't have to be the experts. They just have to know who to reach out to to find the experts to come in. And, and so, you know, it wasn't that, time intensive. We were lucky that we had a lot of people within the Brown system to kind of reach out to, to bring in as expert lecturers. And, but now with Zoom, you know, you know, this, this is really as feasible from anywhere. The last piece that I'll just mention, and maybe Deb can speak a little bit more to this is, you know, I think there's always a question of what do you do about funding? And I think, you know, to have a curriculum that is going to last year after year after year, it's probably pretty imperative that you do have some funding, but we certainly didn't start out that way. We started out with no funding, just motivation and energy. And mm -hmm. it was really after people started to see what we were doing that said, hey, this is something that maybe we could throw a little bit of money at. And I think only as it gets bigger, you know, there'll be more and more interest in that. And I'm sure Deb can tell you more, but, you know, relatively low time commitment, identifying the experts is a challenge, but uh, you know, having gone through this once, you know, and now sharing our results with you, I, you know, hopefully that people reach out to us. And if, if they have questions about who experts are, uh, you know, we had Deb come up and give a talk up at Beth Israel, because we are also doing kind of something uh, similar up here. And so, you know, I think growing this community of experts, you know, we're always happy to be point people for that, but there's so many people out there doing this work. It was so well put. I have nothing to add. I think that sounds great. <laughs> the expert concurs, so <laughs> must have been a good answer. <laughs> That's great. Thank you both so much. In our last couple minutes, you know, how does this, how has this curriculum or this experience like fit into your own careers, especially since I, you know, you're, you know, Dr. Nassikas, you're in a different place now, like tell us how this now like is for you as a, as an academic home critical care physician? Yeah. So um, I, I was obviously sad to leave Brown and, and not be as engaged as I used to be with the curriculum. But like I said, it's in much better hands with Deb at the, at the lead. So I think the way I'm kind of still taking the lessons and, and the things that I learned over the course of the curriculum, because again, I was as much of a learner as I was, you know, one of the co-leaders. And I think my area of research interest is in climate change and health. And I think everyone knows that environmental injustice plays a big role in a lot of things that are related to climate change and health. And so I think I still am finding ways to talk about racism and anti-racism. I think I'm spending more and more time framing it in the context of climate change, but it's, it's you know, the curriculum really gave me some of the vocabulary to start to, to do that. And then, you know, also when our group started thinking about an anti-racism curriculum, it was great to kind of offer some input and say, hey, there, there, I, 
there's someone down at Brown who I think would be an amazing person to bring up here to talk, um, to talk about these things. So um, I think that's how I'm still staying engaged. Yeah. Um, so on my end, I've just been so grateful for um, this opportunity to work on this curriculum, to work with such wonderful and amazing, smart, intelligent, thoughtful people, such as Dr. Nasikas. And, you know, this work has kind of propelled a niche and interest for me. You know, it keeps me motivated. It keeps me challenged. And it's something that I've been able to do scholarly work on, which is really exciting. And that allowed me to carve out some time for this DEI work and to give me some opportunities, you know, locally, regionally, and even nationally. So it's super exciting. And also we wanted to thank you, Dr. Maximus. This is to have the platform to be able to talk about this paper is really, really um, fun and pretty thrilling. And if anyone does have questions, we do hope they reach out. Yeah, and we'll include all of your um, contact information in the in the notes associated with this podcast. And you know, it's a great it's a great thing to have opportunities to get the word out about not only innovative curricula in general, but about you know social justice issues that we feel that are important for trainees to learn or even faculty to to come around to as well, right? And to get that support through or national, international organizations like the American Thoracic Society. So thank you for your work. Thanks for keeping it going. And thanks in advance for being supportive and uh, for your future mentorship of, of others who may seek you out for your expertise. And thank you also to all of our listeners to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.